Welcome to the Ridley College podcast. Here you'll find expert content from past Ridley events, including our public lectures, a series of scholarly lectures in biblical studies and Christian thought. Tune in to hear from leading voices on the New Testament, children's and youth ministry, evangelicalism, Anglicanism, missiology, and much more. Well, ladies and gentlemen, might I welcome you tonight to this, our annual Charles Perry Lecture. The Charles Perry Lecture is in honour of the first Bishop of Melbourne, uh, and it's helping us to understand more of Melbourne's history, Melbourne's Christian or evangelical history in particular. And it's my great delight tonight to welcome Dr. David First Roberts, who will be presenting uh, this lecture on God and Menzies. Before we get underway, I'd like to acknowledge country, recognising the sovereignty of the one creator, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who made all peoples in his own image. We acknowledge the Bonnarong and Wurundjeri people of the Kulin nations, who are the traditional custodians of this land upon which we meet. We give thanks for the elders of this nation and pray for gospel blessings on their descendants. It's wonderful to have you in the room and it's wonderful to welcome some 80 folk online who are live streaming this event. Uh, we'll pray for the lecture in just a few minutes, but in the meantime, a few words about David. Uh, David is a research fellow at the Menzies Research Centre and works for a member of the New South Wales Parliament. He holds a PhD in history from the University of New South Wales and completed part of his candidature at the University of Edinburgh. He has presented papers at history conferences here and in the UK and the US. He's the author of God and Menzies 2021, uh, which you'll find a copy of on your seats. And this book, which is uh, his doctorate, The Making of a Tory Evangelical 2019 on the life and ministry of Lord Shaftesbury. He's the editor of Menzies in his own words, 2020, Abbott, The Defining Speeches, 2019, Howard, The Art of Persuasion, 2018, and Menzies, The Forgotten Speeches, 2017. He's written opinion pieces and articles for Quadrant, ABC Religion and Ethics, Eternity, Spectator Australia, and Lucas, an Evangelical History Review. He enjoys reading, writing, cycling, bushwalking, and quality time with family and friends. So wonderful to have him join us tonight. I'm going to ask the principal, Brian Rosner, to pray for us as we get underway. Thanks, Rhys, and welcome, everyone, and welcome to David. Let's pray. Uh, thank you, Heavenly Father, uh, for this evening together. Thank you for uh, David's visit uh, with us. Um, we we uh, ask you, Lord, that you would help us to renew our minds so that our faith would shape our lives. We pray that tonight would be a benefit to that end and uh, please uh, give us insight into how best to please and serve you in our world after the example of Robert Menzies. Uh, in this we pray in Jesus' name, amen. So please friends, welcome David to the lecture. Well, thank you, Rhys, and uh, thank you, Brian, very much. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, distinguished guests and dear friends, 
It's so wonderful to see you here tonight and to all my online friends and family, I can see you, so a big wave to you all. Um, thank you so much for uh, joining online for the lecture tonight. Um, it was a great privilege to be asked by Dr. Rhys Bazant to deliver this lecture in honour of Charles Perry. And I thank Ridley College for their generosity and hospitality in hosting me. Tonight's lecture bears the name of Charles Perry, the first Anglican Bishop of Melbourne. Both Charles and his wife, Frances Perry, were exemplary public Christians who felt the call of the prophet Jeremiah to seek the good of the city. In the 20th century, the man who would become Australia's longest serving prime minister also lived out the prophetic injunction in his own Christian vocation. To better understand the Christian calling of Robert Gordon Menzies, this lecture will outline the various themes of Christianity that formed his public faith. It will be contended that the multiple sources from which he drew his faith enabled him to project a common Christianity that transcended denominational and sectarian divides. While Menzies was a man of his time who led a very different Australia, it will be pointed out that his example provides some enduring principles for public Christian engagement today. Recognising that people of the Christian faith are now an official minority, the lecture will conclude with a reflection on how they can continue to be ambassadors for their faith. First, I should return to acknowledge the rich legacy of Bishop Charles Perry. Born in London in 1807, Perry was educated at Harrow School and the University of Cambridge. After pursuing careers in law at the Inner Temple Bar and the Church of England priesthood, Perry was installed as the first Bishop of Melbourne, serving the diocese faithfully from 1848 to 1874. As well as laying down the constitution for the Church of England in Victoria, he put his evangelical stamp on the new diocese. Perry's churchmanship was decidedly low church, believing that this best accorded with the spirit of the Book of Common Prayer and the 39 Articles. Professing to be no theologian, Perry was content simply to believe in the Bible. As Bishop, his contribution was perhaps most pronounced in education, where he was responsible for the founding of Melbourne and Geelong grammar schools. Like Menzies in the 20th century, Perry esteemed such church schools not so much as status symbols or bastions of privilege, but as the great builders of personal and spiritual moral character. On the theme of public engagement, it is especially important to recognise Charles Perry's wife, Frances, whom he married in 1814. Frances was not only her husband's great helpmate, but a remarkable public Christian in her own right. And her legacy to Melbourne is palpable to this day. A dedicated philanthropist, Frances assumed leading roles in the governess's home, 
the Carlton Refuge and the Melbourne Orphan Asylum. Her most enduring contribution, however, was her founding of the Royal Melbourne Women's Hospital. Frances served as the first president of the hospital from 1856 to 1874, where she took a keen interest in patient welfare. More than a century later, her service was not forgotten with the opening in 1979, Frances Perry House, at the Royal Women's Hospital. The contribution of Charles and Frances Perry to education and health in Melbourne was characteristic of the public spirited Christianity that flourished in Victoria in the 1800s. Inheriting much of the practical evangelicalism of Victorian England, uh, championed by the likes of Wilberforce and Shaftesbury, of its proliferation of missions, charities and voluntary associations, Melbourne and Victoria in the latter 19th century was home to a host of parachurch charities such as the Ragged Schools for Destitute Children, the Melbourne City Mission and the Melbourne Central Methodist Mission. This was a religious milieu into which Robert Gordon Menzies was born in December 1894, and his family typified this practical Christianity. Menzies' father, James, served as president of the Milton Boys' Home in 1926, a charity that succeeded the old La Trobe Street Ragged School and mission to provide residential care for homeless boys in Melbourne. He was assisted by his wife, Kate, who served on the Women's Auxiliary the home. In honour of a Menzies service, the Milton Boys Home became known as the Menzies Home for Boys and later the Menzies Home for Children to also accommodate girls. Robert Menzies' eldest brother served as president of the home and when Prime Minister, Robert Menzies visited the home himself in 1958. The practical Christianity embodied by Menzies' family came to define the essence of his own Christianity, which was theologically uncomplicated with an emphasis on self-giving service. Like the 20th century Anglican writer and apologist C.S. Lewis, Menzies would have viewed himself as an exponent of mere Christianity, which rejected atheism to affirm the Christian essentials of a Trinitarian God, a divinely inspired Bible, and personal redemption through Christ. In his Christmas messages, he recognized the cross as a figure of sacrifice and acknowledged that Jesus Christ was human as well as divine. In his 1960 speech to open the Bible Society's new headquarter in Canberra, he described the Bible as the repository of our faith and our inspiration and remarked that the great gospel and the whole spirit of Christianity is contained in this great and immortal book. While the Christian orientation of Menzies was simple and practical, its origins were somewhat complex with his religious faith drawn from multiple strands of Christianity. Here I will outline four of these major strands. The first two were denominational, namely Presbyterian and Methodist. The second two were transdenominational, liberal Protestantism and evangelical Protestantism. 
Fond of describing himself as a simple Presbyterian, the immediate source of Menzies' faith was naturally the Scottish Presbyterianism from his father's side of the family, the James Menzies pictured here. To be sure, Menzies largely saw his Presbyterianism as part and parcel of his cultural identity in much the same way as an Irish Australian would typically view their Catholicism or a German Australian their Lutheranism. As such, he personified many of the cultural attitudes characteristic of Presbyterianism, such as thrift, personal responsibility, a dedication to the Protestant work ethic, the importance of civic duty, serving society, and also the integration of the sacred into the secular. In terms of Presbyterian theology, Menzies was certainly familiar with the Westminster Confession of Faith, uh, which he would quote playfully, and he assented to its confession of the Christian fundamentals, but did not necessarily hold firm to its more explicitly Calvinist teachings. This was for two main reasons. First, his doctrinally minimalist form of Christianity was not disposed to probing the finer points of theology. And secondly, there were some Calvinist doctrines with which he felt uncomfortable, owing to a combination of both Methodist and Enlightenment liberal sympathies. For one thing, Menzies had a too optimistic view of human nature as a liberal uh, to have accepted the Calvinist doctrine of total depravity, which held human beings to have no innate capacity for good apart from God's grace. In addition, Menzies' universalist conception of God's fatherhood would not have sat well with the Calvinist doctrine of limited atonement, the idea that God sent Christ to die only for the elect. While Menzies did not speak specifically on the atonement, I think he would have warmed more to the Wesleyan Methodist understanding that Christ's death on the cross was for all of humanity and not just the elect. Thus, for all his Presbyterian identity and familiarity with the Westminster Confession, his theology was arguably more Methodist than Calvinist. This, of course, brings us to the second major tributary of Menzies' faith, uh, together with the Scottish Presbyterianism of his father's lineage, James, uh, the Cornish Methodism of his mother's side coursed through his veins. His mother, Kate, um, later identified with the Presbyterianism of her husband, James, but her Sampson family background was of Methodist origin. Given Robert Menzies' own upbringing in the Japarit Methodist Church and his secondary education at Wesley College, a leading Methodist school here in Melbourne, it was not surprising that his faith assumed more of a Methodist flavour. His faith in human free will, optimistic view of human transformation, and emphasis on the practical over the theological, really more closely resembled the Methodist spirit of John Wesley than the Presbyterian tradition of John Knox. After leaving Wesley College, Menzies was not known to worship regularly at Methodist churches, yet far from fading into obsolescence, the Methodism of his childhood and youth continued to infuse the flavour of his Protestantism 
well into his riper years. In the most apparent sense, this was evident in the high praise he accorded the founder of Methodism, John Wesley, whom he credited for breathing life into what was a rather lethargic 18th century English church. The Methodist sympathies of Menzies helped explain the close rapport he enjoyed with the Reverend Sir Clarence Irving Benson, the leading Methodist cleric of post-war Melbourne, who is famous for his national ministry of pleasant Sunday afternoons, and also for the warm affection he held for the Salvation Army, which itself is a 19th century offshoot of Methodism, founded by the revivalist preacher and evangelist William Booth. As to the broader pan-Protestant influences on Menzies' faith, there were two seemingly conflicting streams of liberal and evangelical Protestantism. Taking the liberal Protestant first, Menzies imbibed much of this tradition through his involvement with the Melbourne University Student Christian Union, of which he served as president in 1916 when he was a campus here at Melbourne. And uh, the Melbourne SEU was actually part of a worldwide student Christian movement or SEM, which was founded by the American evangelist John R. Mott in 1895. Although it could be classified as broadly evangelical Protestant in origin, the movement assumed more of a theologically liberal nature in the early 20th century with a modernist approach to interpreting scripture, together with an emphasis on ethics, practical Christianity, the universal fatherhood of God, and the teachings of the human Jesus. In contrast to traditional evangelical Protestantism, liberal Protestantism tended to emphasize first the fatherhood of God and the brotherhood of man before the traditional emphasis on personal salvation through Jesus Christ. Menzies appeared to reflect this orientation himself as he saw God as the father of all human beings and all people as brothers and sisters of one another. The liberal Protestant approach to interpreting scripture also shaped Menzies. Despite his own high view of the Bible, he noted approvingly from his travels around England in the 1930s that the literal interpretation of the Bible was now abandoned by all intelligent men, including most of the bishops, Church of England. So in short, Menzies took the Bible seriously, but not literally. For all its theologically liberal orientation, however, it was evident that Menzies' Protestantism also bore some unmistakable hallmarks of evangelicalism. The young Menzies absorbed this more conservative form of Protestantism through his reading of the Scottish evangelist and theologian Henry Drummond. In his own afternoon light memoirs, I think he used to say that he would read Henry Drummond for evangelistic fervour. So there was something in that and also his personal encounter with the Melbourne Church of England Evangelical, Clifford Harris C.H. Nash, uh, who founded the Melbourne Bible Institute, which still runs to this day as the uh, Melbourne Bible College. 
So um, as a law student at the University of Melbourne, at around the time of the First World War, Menzies attended an evangelistic address on campus by C.H. Nash. And um, he had a personal encounter with the evangelist. And 30 years later, Nash crossed paths with Menzies again. And recalling their original encounter on campus, Nash said, the Prime Minister of Australia, Mr. Menzies came to me at a meeting and said, did you give a lecture in Melbourne in the classroom there many years ago? I said, yes, I went several times. He said, did you have a little black book in your hand? And did you hold it up and say, in this book is all I know of Christ Jesus and all I need to know of what God has in store for me. I said yes, and produced the book from my pocket, my Greek New Testament. Mr. Menzies said, I was one of those who heard you and I have never forgotten the effect that your words had on me. In addition to C.H. Nash, Menzies attributed his daily habit of Bible reading to Dr. Leland Wang, the Chinese evangelist and founder of the Chinese foreign missionary movement. With regular Bible reading being the most obvious evangelical trait of Menzies' faith, his Protestantism exhibited other evangelical characteristics. Unlike proponents of the social gospel movement that took off from the 1920s, Menzies held to the traditional evangelical understanding that Christianity started with the spiritual renewal or conversion of the individual rather than the restructuring of society. His appreciation of evangelicalism was evident also in his admiration for hearty expressions of faith. While not an evangelical revivalist in the mold of a Billy Graham or a Dwight L. Moody, he appreciated a Christianity that exuded spiritual life. Again, from his diary entries of his visit to the UK in 1935, he evidently favoured church services with heartfelt worship and gospel preaching, rather than the perfunctory ones that simply went through the motions of the liturgy. The sheer breadth of uh, Christian traditions from which Menzies formed his faith enabled him as Prime Minister to project a common Christianity that transcended doctrinal divisions between Australia's churches. And with almost 90% of Australians identifying as Christian in the censuses, it somewhat amplified the uh, common Christianity of everyday Australians. And um, in a speech to a Salvation Army Citizens Rally in 1958, Menzies said, I know that in the course of history, there have been divisions in the Christian church. And no doubt we all have some differences among ourselves in terms of church government, sometimes in points of doctrine. But I always like to feel that underneath all this, there is one Bible, there is one message, and that the nearer we get to that, the less we will be concerned with dogma of any kind. Viewing the Bible as a common wellspring of faith for Christians of all churches, Menzies observed that it was better to seek the fountainhead than to divide up amongst the little streams. 
The ecumenicalism of Menzies extended also to Australia's Roman Catholic and Eastern Orthodox communities. Since the late 1920s, after a bitter debate over conscription, uh, sectarianism was rife. And Menzies had a long record in the midst of this of seeking to heal the Protestant Catholic rift that had long blighted Australian society. In 1928, he defended his decision to attend the uh, opening of a Catholic school in his Melbourne electorate of East Yarra amid opposition from some of his constituents. As the Victorian Attorney General in the early 1930s, he attracted criticism for standing up to some Protestants who wanted him to ban a large Catholic Eucharistic procession through the streets of central Melbourne. As Prime Minister for the first time in 1939, he addressed a Melbourne peace rally organised by Catholic Action, a lay advocacy organisation, and stressed the shared, presence, shared faith of all present by drawing attention to his own presence as a Presbyterian on a Catholic platform. In Menzies' second period as Prime Minister, his cooperation with Australian Catholics on the contentious issue of state aid was recognised when he was invited as a guest of honour to the Cardinal's dinner in Sydney in 1964. Essentially, Menzies saw Protestants and Catholics as two different branches of the one Christian tree with its trunk grounded in Christ Jesus and the cross of salvation. With the arrival of Eastern European immigrants after the Second World War, contributing to a small yet growing Eastern Orthodox presence, Menzies made overtures to the growing Greek Orthodox communities in Melbourne, officiating at the opening of new Greek Orthodox churches Menzies applauded not only their spiritual and community contribution, but also the Christian heritage that they shared with Australians at large. At the same time as fostering a common Christianity as part of Australia's identity and heritage, Menzies recognised the diversity of post-war Australia's faith communities and therefore promoted religious freedom, non-sectarianism, and interfaith harmony in the civic life of a nation. Prior to the growth of Islam, Buddhism, and other religious faiths in Australia from the 1970s, Judaism represented Australia's second largest religious community, and Menzies enjoyed an excellent rapport with Australia's Jewish community. He respected the Jewish legacy for its Old Testament origins and profound contribution to Western civilization, as well as admiring the Jewish people for their historical resilience through centuries of persecution, for their rich cultural traditions of scholarship, civic mindedness, and enduring sense of kinship. Frequently invited to speak at ceremonies organized by the Jewish community here in Melbourne, Menzies praised the Jewish people for their contribution to Australia. With his abiding commitment to religious freedom, Menzies affirmed the place of all faiths in Australia. In his address to the 1964 Cardinals dinner, he remarked that we are all members of one another. This is something we must never lose sight of 
And whether we be Catholic or Protestant, Jewish or Muslim, the end remains clear. We have an overwhelming duty to serve our country on the highest level and to the best of our talents. This was premised on a long held conviction in religious freedom for all citizens, including those of no faith. In the 1941 broadcast address on religious freedom, Menzies stressed that religious freedom was freedom for all, Catholic or Protestant, Jew or Gentile, and that to deny it was to go back to the dark ages of man. As unappealing as atheism may have been to Menzies as a belief system, he nonetheless affirmed the freedom to worship or not to worship. Of atheists and agnostics, he said, there have been many honest and indeed noble men in this world who have never been able to find a God. Are we to deny them their place? In Australia and elsewhere, different faith communities will never agree on the nature of the divine and the path to salvation. Yet in civil society, they can find plenty of common ground with their appeal to human goodwill and the pursuit of a common good. The calling for Christians and others of faith in such a society, to quote the late Rabbi Jonathan Sachs of London, is to be true to our faith while being a blessing to others, regardless of their faith. As well as his affirmation of religious freedom, there are other principles of public Christian engagement that we can glean from Menzies example. Of course, the cultural, the cultural currency of Christianity and the public standing of the churches today is vastly different from that of Menzies time as prime minister. Yet even in our highly secularized society, there are principles from Menzies that we can contend for in the present time. These include the acceptance of a, of a religiously plural society, yet one in touch with its Judeo-Christian roots. The freedom of political conscience for the religious believer, a holistic view of human flourishing, and a belief that all people bear the image of God. To be sure, some of these will be accepted by popular opinion, while others will attract more resistance. But that, after all, is a reception to be expected of a Christian message in any place or time. First, Menzies saw no tension in a country such as ours between being able to cherish and celebrate its Christian heritage while being open and embracing of citizens from all religious or non-religious creeds. Menzies would have rejected the secularist myth that modern Australia evolved in some kind of spiritual vacuum with no formative religious foundation. Rather, he would have accepted the sensible thesis of the historian Manning Clark that modern Australia post-1788 was forged primarily by the three traditions of Protestantism, Catholicism and the Enlightenment. Indeed, he would have recognised that it was the Judeo-Christian impulses of hospitality, toleration and love of neighbour drawn from teaching such as the parable of the Good Samaritan 
that made it possible for such a society to welcome newcomers of different backgrounds and faiths. Articulating this neighbourly ethic at a citizenship convention in 1950, Menzies said that we should regard every migrant as our friend and we should go to no end of trouble to make every migrant feel at home. He understood also that migrants were attracted to Australia for the very country that it already was, with those attractive features of freedom, peace, order, the rule of law and good government being the undeniable fruits of its Judeo-Christian inheritance. For Christian believers, this inheritance can best be understood as a providential blessing to be cherished with thanksgiving. Given Menzies' toleration for a plurality of religious views in civic life, it was not surprising that he exhibited a toleration for a plurality of political views within the Christian community. As attached as Menzies was to his own Liberal Party on the centre-right, he accepted that there was room in every political party for men and women of all schools of Christian thought. Believing in a faith that transcended political creeds, Menzies' conception of Christianity was avowedly non-partisan. He remarked that it would be a poor day if we got to the stage of believing that in our particular church, everybody must subscribe to a particular political party. In a speech to Sydney's Wesley Mission in 1958, he warned against the temptation for Christians to express their faith in party political terms, but insisted that this was different from expressing one's politics in Christian terms. Essentially, this meant that instead of a person's faith being informed by their political ideology or philosophy, their political creed should be informed by their faith. This was because Menzies believed that as important as political ideas were, a religious faith such as Christianity was of greater and overriding importance. The importance Menzies accorded to personal religious faith formed part of his holistic view of human flourishing. As much as he welcomed the rising standard of living in post-war Australia with more households owning cars, homes, modern appliances and other consumer goods, he reminded his citizens that there was much more to the good life than simply material gain. In a 1962 address, he said that, we could easily become man for man, woman for woman, the richest country in the Southern Hemisphere, but it won't matter very much unless we are also the most civilized country. Civilized because we understand the unselfish duties of citizenship, Civilised because we have come to understand the importance of the human being. The dignity of riches. The responsibility of labour. These are the tests of civilization, and our great task is to produce a civilised nation. Like the celebrated Russian intellectual and Soviet dissident Alexander Solzhenitsyn, Menzies was awake to not only the tyranny of Soviet communism in the East, but also the rising materialism of the post-war West. In a Western world preoccupied with materialistic imperatives such as economic growth, prosperity and productivity, 
The high premium Menzies afforded to faith, moral character, freedom, civilization, community, and personal relationships remain eminently constructive for today. It is a reminder for us, not only as a nation, but as individuals, that it is the character of our hearts, the way we treat others, the relationships we build, and the difference we make to our world that counts rather than our net worth, our postcode or possessions. Menzies' old friend, Winston Churchill, put it well when he said, we make a living by what we get, we make a life by what we give. For Menzies, the ultimate source of an individual's worth was their creation in the image of God. As foreign as this may sound to secular ears, we need to be reminded of Menzies' insight that there is in every human soul a spark of a divine and that the souls of all stand equal in the eyes of God. His belief in the Imago Dei was thoroughly consistent and when speaking about the importance of education in 1961, he said that we must recapture our desire to know more and feel more about our fellow man to have a philosophy of living, to elevate the dignity of man, a dignity which in our Christian concept arises from our belief that he is made in the image of his maker. Believing that each individual, in the words of a psalmist, is fearfully and wonderfully made, it is surely the sage truth of the Hebrew scriptures that trumps any category of race, class, gender, or sexuality as a source of our true human worth and identity. For believers in the Christian message, moreover, it is the cross of Christ that is a great equaliser and guarantor of human worth. From the richest king of a land to the naked thief who hung beside the crucified Christ, all could find redemption and restoration through the power of a cross. For those who cling to that old rugged cross, where does this leave Christian believers in a public culture that has changed so radically since Menzies' time? Going from an age of Sunday schools bursting at the seams to sermons printed in major newspapers and to 88% of Australians ticking a Christian denomination in the census box, to one where only 46% of people identify as Christian, where country churches are converted into pubs, and where Christian moral attitudes are viewed not simply as dated, but even intolerable. Well, even in his day, in what many see as a golden age of uh, Christianity, Menzies never lost sight of the fact to use his words, that Christianity was the greatest minority movement in human history. And history, in a sense, has come full circle. In an age where Christians feel like a besieged minority, it is tempting to despair and lose heart. They must be reminded from church history that the first brothers and sisters of the faith were here before, and that God is a faithful shepherd to his people. Christians of all generations have been called by their Lord to be salt and light, to love their neighbours, to do good to all, 
and to seek the good of the city. The Croatian theologian Miroslav Volf reminds followers of Christ that they are sent into the world as he was, to love friends and enemies, co-religionists and infidels, and to rejoice in everything that is true, good and beautiful, wherever they might found it. More than two centuries earlier, John Wesley, sometimes referred to as the Apostle of England and a favourite of Menzies, reminded the people of God to do all the good they could to all the people they could, by all the ways they could, in all the places they could, for as long as they could. Though in a world that is frequently at odds with the will and purpose of God, the Apostle Paul reminded his fellow believers that they would find themselves at war with the powers, principalities and darkness of this age. Menzies and his fellow travellers in the church certainly understood this in their day as they stood firm for the ageless truths of Christianity against atheistic communism and the then rising materialism and permissiveness in the West. Yet in this battle, they must remember the words of a British essayist and cultural critic, G.K. Chesterton, who remarked that the true soldier fights not because of what they hate, what is in front of them, but because they love what is behind them. For us who follow Christ, that means loving what Menzies called the old yet new evangel of the Sermon on the Mount, loving our neighbour, whether friend or foe, and holding fast to all that is good, true and beautiful in God's world, for which he sent his son to seek and to save all that is lost. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to the Ridley College podcast brought to you by Ridley College. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider subscribing and liking our podcast. Also, be sure to check out our Ridley Chapel Sermons podcast through the link in our podcast description. This podcast is made possible through the generous donations of our alumni and supporters. We welcome your partnership with us in our mission of equipping men and women for God's mission in our rapidly changing and increasingly complex world. If you'd like to contribute to our work, you can donate via the link in the description below.